Everyone, welcome back to America Mao and the Metaverse with the polls. Mr. Schulte, how are you? Good. It's been about six years since I've had a client base of people who have been this confused about what's going on, whether it's what the terminal rate of the Federal Reserve is going to be, why equities have held up the way that they have in the face of what has been a historically significant rise in market interest rates in the US yet. The terminal rate in the United States has gone from 150 basis points to 350 basis points in the space of literally four months. And yet equities are, yes, we'll use the S&P as a guide as 5% off its highs. It's remarkable. And I have a, a client base of very, very smart people, as you have a client base of very, very smart people who haven't got a bloody clue what's going on. Yeah, I just got back from a long trip seeing clients in America. And I, and I, I think that's right. I would say one half of my client base is like short to the gills and the other half are like bottom fishing, right? And the, the logic of each is pretty much impeccable. I sent a note out this week to my clients, which is that what, what we're seeing is sort of be careful what you wish for. All the central banks of the world have been dying for inflation for 13 years. Inflation is the only way out of this $330 you know, trillion dollar debt pile that we have, because uh, any deflationary impulse is going to just push us over into the abyss, and, and it'll take us 30 years to get out. And so inflation was coming anyway, and the pandemic and now this war in this Russo-Ukrainian war that we have has aggravated the dynamics of what the, the Fed and the Bank of England and the ECB have been trying to achieve for 13 years. We're there. We have inflation. It is undeniable. There's don't talk about this will be gone by the fall. That is utter crap. Because why? Because two things are happening. The first thing that's happening is, and we saw it last weekend in Staten Island with AWS, I would submit to you that people are not talking enough about the reality that the labor, the labor pool in America is probably more militant than it's been in three generations. Yep. This is a labor pool that has had it. And, and the move to, all the way to the extreme end of, to capital is now moving back to labor for the first time in, in generations because they, don't, they, they can't just be treated like bees and then you know, just be pushed off the, the hive when they're halfway sick, which is what's been happening to tens of millions of Americans. Mm. And so the Staten Island strike that we saw at AWS and, and the collective bargaining is monumental. And they made it very clear on Saturday when, when they got that vote, we're just starting. And the same thing is happening with Starbucks, right? You saw what happened with Starbucks. They canceled their stock buyback in order to accommodate labor. This is good. This is going to, this is going to improve wages. And wage growth is inflationary. On top of that, you've had, I looked at the numbers this weekend when I was looking at my stuff for my clients. Paul, come on. I mean, revolving credit going into 2022, 24% rise. Overall credit in the United States of America, 13% rise. This is one of the largest rises since before the GFC. So we have pretty much record rises in credit, revolving credit, which is to say consumer credit, and wages. This is the largest wage growth we've seen since the 60s. Mm. And it's, and it's wage growth... And, and it is wage growth fall that it's still not keeping up with inflation. So real wages are falling, right? That, that, is, that is part of it. And I think that that's not just a US phenomenon. I think that that is starting to manifest itself out with riots in Peru and issues in Sri Lanka. And these are 
sort of things. And I think that the That's right. analogies of the Arab Spring, I think, are too eerie to dismiss. And it is a function of, look, I mean, I, I think that maybe the, the, the Putin's malfeasance in Ukraine was the straw that broke the camel's back. But really, you've alluded to multi, multi-year problems that are built up to this point. Now, whether this is the tipping point or not remains to be seen. But no, but Paul, I think, it's, I think that the equity response to me is interesting because I'm not a believer that the equity, that asset market pricing is all seeing and all knowing. I don't believe in the sage, the sage um, characteristics of equities thinking that they are what the world is going to be like in 12 or 24 months' time, right? Mm-hmm. Never believe that. But I am a believer that at the end of the day, we are where we are. And if those bearish clients of yours who are very, very short, well, they may have a foolproof narrative, but they've also got to answer why have equities not adjusted to a dramatic, historical, proportional increase in interest rates? Because as we stand today, the terminal rate's gone from 150 to 350, and the S&P's 5% off its highs, which if you and I were sitting around over a glass of wine six months ago, and I said, Paul, Stocks are going, stock, the, the terminal rate is going to go up by a couple of hundred basis points in next to no time. Where are equities in response to that? My guess, knowing you as I do, you would have said down 20 to 25% because that's precisely what I would have said. And I don't get why we're here. Well, remember about a month ago, you and I were talking and, and you and I were, were, had both concluded that there was going to be some kind of rally because underneath the five stocks that have held up these indices, there is a terrible, terrible bear market. Let's not forget that. Five stocks are holding up. The S&P 5 are holding up the S&P 495 for sure. The S&P 495 are, are down probably 20%. Remember, half of the uh, NASDAQ, l- let me re- recall the exact number. 20% of the NASDAQ was down 50 and 50% of the NASDAQ was down 20. So one-fifth of the NASDAQ lost half its value. And one half of the NASDAQ lost you know, 20% of its value. And so that is a deep, deep bear market for so many people, especially on the retail level. So we can't forget that. When you push like the bearish people, it's like, well, wait a minute here. You, you, you love cash flows and Facebook has astounding cash flow and Apple has astounding cash flow and Amazon has, ast- <laughs> has astounding yeah. cash flow. Right. And and, and 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 Google has astounding cash flow. And so tell me what the problem is. Right. And yeah. so you kind of challenge them on that. And the, the, the bearish argument falls down a little bit. And so what I would also say that's that's important is that inflation gives you free revenue. Right. Revenue growth on the top line filters down to pretty good margins on the bottom if if you can keep your costs under control. Mm. And, and that's the key to this. But the one problem I, w- I do have currently, mate, is the debate is the growth debate. And I don't know if, well, sorry, we've got a 5% mortgage, five, 30-year mortgages are, are at 5% right now, right? And I think obviously that is a drag, right? That is certainly a drag. Housing affordability has, has gone, has, has deteriorated significantly of, in recent times. But you know, if you look at a very reliable, you know, not perfect, but quite reliable forward indicator of GDP growth, which is the Atlanta Fed GDP now indicator, that's running at, at sub 1% rate, which means that 
all of that nominal growth that you've got, that eight and a half, that nine percent of nominal growth, it's all yeah. prices. It's all prices. That's right. Yeah. Volume side of things is currently is currently a bit of a struggle. And again, I was talking to a client that, that we have in common to, earlier today, and there's a a notion about things breaking that the Fed is going to tighten until things break, right? And whether that is that breaking is equity markets, whether it is credit spreads, whether it is growth itself, right? The Fed's in a position where it has to keep going until something breaks, right? And that where you get into the confusion of is this inflation that we have in front of us because we have zero interest rates? I'll push back against that a lot and say a lot of what we have is supply side driven, which may not be impacted by by higher yields. Now, certainly the labour market is, is a part of this and a big part of this, as you just alluded to. That does have a monetary coefficient to this. Are we really in the in the hands of the gods of, you know, be them the the Russia-Ukraine gods or the or the summer planting season for wheat and corn gods or or the oil and gas gods to actually get inflation to come to move lower? Because if it's not a monetary phenomenon, we're relying on the global supply chain to free up again, whether it's in corn, wheat, gas, oil, wherever. And that's the only thing that gets inflation down over the medium term. I generally agree with you. I think it's critically important that your point is very well taken and very poorly understood by so many people. And that is that what creates money is credit. Credit creation creates money. The Fed does not create money. In fact, I made the argument to my clients that if you see what's happening with the the, the interaction between the the, the banks and, and the Federal Reserve, and I had quite a few clients you know, this week agree with me, the, the, the banks are pulling money off of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet because there's so much demand for credit. The Fed is not pushing money off. The Fed is not managing its balance sheet. The, 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 the banks are pulling money off as interest rates are going up. Now, what that means is that as the banks pull that money out of the Fed's uh, balance sheet, right, those voluntary reserves are sitting Mm. as liabilities of the Fed, and they move back on to to the bank's balance sheet as cash, and then the cash is deployed into risk assets, right, loans, right? And when that happens, the Fed on the asset side, what does the Fed have to do? It has to sell treasuries. Mm. Rates go up. That's why rates are going up. Rates are going up because the private sector is crowding out the public sector. That's what's going on right now. Do we have a positive credit multiplier for the 14 years? Exactly. That's exactly what I concluded. The the money multiplier is going up. And the money multiplier dropped. It was dead. Exactly, Paul. The money multiplier dropped to one from around 2.7 to three. Over like a 30-year period, it has collapsed to one. You, see, you hit it on the head. The money multiplier is going up for the first time in decades. And this is really important. Yeah, it's a big deal. I mean, and mate, again, you know, you look at you look at where, and these are glo- what you've alluded to, you're seeing this as a microcosm in the United States, but these are global issues. I mean, going back to your equity analogy before, I mean, equities have been a dead asset class in most of the, most of the rest of the world for 10 years. Emerging markets, uh, exactly. You want to talk about you want to talk about five stocks driving the U.S. Five t- five to ten stocks have driven the world. No, exactly, so, exactly, exactly, You're exactly right. And also, Paul, I was looking at, at all the credit growth around the world. 
And essentially what you've got is a pretty decent handful of credit growth that is chunky. Korea, Taiwan, Southeast Asia, Australia, Canada, America, a couple of countries in Europe, Eastern European credit growth is on fire. And, and then I'm running out, <laughs> right? But, so, but see, you, you st- the engine is still like sputtering in most of the world. Europe credit growth is negative. UK credit growth is negative. China's mm-hmm. credit growth is pretty punk. Japan's credit growth is pretty awful. So, so what, what, what I think I see happening is we are definitely seeing the move from, from growth to value. And for me, that switch is we're going from what we want to what we need. That's what happens during inflation. And what we need are, the, are in value stocks. And I went around the world and I was looking at the, the number of value stocks that my algorithm screens, the best value market in the world, Japan. And Japan's getting inflation for the first time in 30 years. And the Bank of Japan is fighting it. And you know, Paul, I mean, people that don't know, you and I, you and I, you and I were, you know, we did I did I did Japan in my early life. I think you were doing bank. Was that your one of your first jobs that you did was Japanese banks back in the day? Did you ever cover Japanese banks? Yes, I was doing securitization in 1993 when I you was. You weren't doing securitization in Rapongi. You were not. You were that was the last thing you were doing in Rapongi. <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. No, we were doing securitization in, in the early 90s when I was at Credit Suisse, and of course, it was going nowhere. But yeah, I mean, I mean, Japan doesn't even know what inflation is. They don't. I mean, it's the same thing that like people in the West don't know what deflation is. The Japanese, like, what is this? And what prices are going up? What what is going on here? And so I think they're going to have to get used to it. And so the, the yen weakens, and credit growth, the engine starts going, and value stocks are going to perform. And, and most of the Japanese market is trading at about one half book, one half to 0.7 book, like yep. most of the entire market. And, right? and look, Japan's, because of Japan's deflation. Been, Japan's been a value, but Japan's been a value trap for 30 years, right? Um, Correct. Exactly. It's, exactly. The, it's death to value, which has been there. And I mean, whether it was the activist movement under Koizumi and kids, if you don't know who Koizumi, the Prime Minister Koizumi was, he was hands down the politician with the greatest hair of the 20th century. There was a, a perceived activist re- revolution there that sort of went up and pitted that and sort of flitted out again. And it's interesting to hear about the Bank of Japan's response to all of this, Paul, because they're not buying it. They've been dovish and continue to be dovish and continue to support the yield curve control that they've been advocating for, you know, for, for multiple years now. They are, That's all they know how to do. Yeah, that's all yeah. they know how to do. Yeah. And look, again, as the world is pivoting, you saw it with Lael Brainard yesterday, to her hawkish comments and... She's as dovish as they come historically at the Federal Reserve, and she's pivoting hawkish. But the Bank of Japan is the last. Are they the last? Are the last man standing? Yeah. No. Exactly. Exactly. I, I like I said. I think that the Bank of Japan has been like living in this deflationary world for two decades at least. I think just as the Fed doesn't even know what to do with deflation, Japan doesn't know what to do with inflation, and so we have to watch and see what kind of policy mistakes they make, but. If they're going to be behind the curve, I think it's going to be really good for the value stocks in Japan. Well, and Mike, look, again, let's, the demographic issues, which I believe are very, very important in terms of the long-term inflation, and that's why I'm a badly beaten up structural deflationist at, as we, at the moment, but a lot of Japan's deflation is imported, right? They're a net importer of energy, which obviously is a huge, plays a huge role in this. But look, I mean, Going back to the whole notion that they are the last man standing, I mean, there's 180 basis points of hikes priced into the in, into the ECB, right? Now, last time I looked, mate, there's there's a 
there's a European recession just around the corner. It sh- and it shows how dislocated some markets are that we can you know, be sitting here talking about a European recession, which, by the way, is becoming a consensus at, at a minimum in, in early 2023, if not before. And yet we're talking about the potential for you know, up close to 200 basis points of rate increases that are priced in there for the next 15 months, I think it is. The world is screwed up in this. We haven't had to deal with this in a very long time. And credit growth re-emerging in the United States, and of course, should I say, the credit multiplier reasserting itself in in the United States is, but just another thing that we haven't had to deal with for a very, very long time. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so if, if, if you can look at what people were trying to say back in the early to mid-teens, they're all going to say, we need to get inflation at above 2% for a considerable period of time. We need to turn on the credit engine, right? The, the plane is stalling and it's going to crash if we don't turn on the credit engine on all four engines going. And, and, and then when we get that problem, that's the good problem. Then we're going to deal with it. Right. right. And that is what you it's taken 13 years to get this problem. Well, and, and I, I think the pandemic to do it. Right. Because it wasn't yeah, happening yeah, without yeah, the yeah. pandemic. Right. It wasn't happening without. Likely. Likely. I, I, I don't know. I, I took a stab. My theory is that that the pandemic gave um, people enough sense of mortality and, and a lot of depth that was around us to realize that everyone's an inch away from just collapsing and, and dying. And, and so everyone well, was like, you know what, I, I'm, I'm not. I'm not doing this anymore without health insurance. I'm not doing this anymore without uh, a net. This is unacceptable. I think and the so labor market why... elements, I think that's fair. I think the labor market elements you alluded to then, I think are very, very fair. But we would never have had a 16% of GDP deficit without the pan- pandemic. We wouldn't have had the supply chain disruptions and the sand in the yes, gear, correct, the ultimate correct. deflationary yes, force, yes, which is yes. globalization. Without yeah. without the pandemic, so and I yes, think look, yes, I think it yeah, all feeds yeah. on it, it fed on itself, yes, yes, um, yes, to create this wage spiral that we're currently in the midst of. Yes, yeah, I agree, I agree, I agree, I agree, and and I think the Great Resignation is just a national look. You know what? I, I, I I'm not underestimating what I'm saying. We are in the middle of a national strike in America. The Great Resignation is effing. I'm not going to go get a job if it just if it if it if it, if it just becomes a humiliation. And you just want me to work as a cashier at Costco or Walmart. I'm done. I'm staying home. F it. No, and, and look, you do this a lot. You have a lot of interns that work for you, right? We, we've just put out an ad on LinkedIn because we need to hire five people for Climate Transform to help us with our events and our social media push and, the, and that whole thing. None of that's going to be in an office. It's all remote, right? Yeah. And this could be, and these in some cases could be someone's third or fourth job. Right. And I'm totally cool with that. Right. I'm totally cool with that. Right. Are you You cool with hiring a 60 year old person? Are you cool with hiring a 60 year old person? If they get the job done, yeah, I don't give a shit. Now, am I going to be a little biased from a social media standpoint to think that they might be up to speed? Of course, I'm going to be skeptical. But but if I've got an event planning job where we have to find speakers for a sustainable protein event or something like that, and we've got lists of people we need to contact yeah that's fine mate if a job is sending out 50 to 100 emails a day and it's relatively templated that's no problem for me i mean i look i do believe yeah look i I, am i going to be skeptical from a technology standpoint yes i am i'm skeptical of my own technological abilities at time and i keep working to be relevant as you do on all this stuff but i frankly don't care about that because i do think that people can 
we talk a lot about the inability for you know for a, for a, for a boom, not maybe not boomers but slightly younger than boomers for them to reinvent themselves but i think we blanket people too much with this and i think that there is just because you're of a certain age doesn't mean that you can't adapt right and if you can find someone who's smart who's looking for flexibility i'll take a single mother working any day of the week in terms of diligence and hard work and like that that's how you get someone to work hard so uh, yeah great no but i mean look i think look i think that this is a and on, I think the inflation cyclicality can come and go, right? It may be elevated to certainly higher than normal. The movement away from peak capital share of GDP to growing labour share of GDP, which is where we're going with all of this, and that's and that's call it the trough of the labour, the union movement, call it what you will. But there is pushback, and there is structural change that's going on, and I think we're seeing that in. In seeing that in Canada right now with the pushback against Justin Trudeau, you're going to see it in the French elections as well. Labor is labor is pushing back, and labor wants flexibility. Labor wants a four day week. Labor labor wants you know labor wants a living wage. And frankly, the days of the Anne Rand style you know you know free mar- free market at any cost, I think I think they're done. And I think both sides of the aisle, both conservative and and liberal. Is is on board with that to some degree? No way. Okay. All right. Walk, okay. Walk, okay. So walk through. No public, way. Okay. The we'll billionaires are just like go to hell. Go to hell with your tax increases. Go to hell with your insurance for employees. Go to hell with your living wage. We need capitalism. We need to keep the economy going, baby. So you know, you just saw Getz give uh, the Secretary of Defense yesterday like a hammering because they invited Thomas Piketty to speak at the National Defense Institute. And he hammered him and said, you invited the socialist to speak at the National Defense Institute? We do not stand for these values. This is unacceptable. And he had, he had a lot of supporters. It's just this, this, well, this but it, you know, okay, capitalism so at any cost is alive and well. And this is going to result in violence if one side doesn't give in a little bit more. Okay, but look at the, okay. So, but let's, let me ask this question: You've just given an argument about a structural bottom in in labor in labor in, in share. Then it's going to it's going to get labor. violent. Then it's going to get violent. Right. Okay. So, and then how do you gel that with the the demographic of the of the of the now medium Republican voter who is not the rich banker? You know, we stereotype a lot. It is, if anyone's ever been to a Trump rally, these are working class people. Right? And everybody who I know is like, why are you voting against it? Everybody, you talk to them all the time and they say, why are you voting against your own interests? He's going to give tax breaks to the 1%. You're not going to get a thing out of this. He's taking away your benefits. Oh, I love him because he's trying to make us, he's instilling a sense of dignity back into our lives again. And I don't even know what that means, but that's what they think he's doing. But he's just basically robbing and pillaging for his own franchise and giving tax tax cuts to the 1%. And so mm. whatever, these people, are, that's what happens all the time. These demagogic populists come along and they capture the poor people and they sell them a line. And this is what's been going on for hundreds of years. So nothing mm. new here. Trump so, is a dime a dozen. And, but are we just destined then, Paul, because for all the dysfunction of the, of the US political model, it's remarkably, <laughs> it's remarkably mean reverting in this regard. So we went from Trump to Biden. You know, Bi- Biden has tried 
to implement a bunch of very sort of socially oriented policies and being hamstrung a little bit predominantly by Joe Manchin, right? Midterms are going to come. It's pretty safe to say as we stand today and statistically the Democrats are going to get get crushed in the midterms, right, which gets us back to more divided government and more and less going on. So that my, my, my fears about recession in 2023 and 24 or slower growth in those periods is less about the about interest rates going up and more about the fact that the fiscal deficit over an 18-month period is going to go from 16% of GDP down to 6% of GDP because we're just not going to get anything done because the Republicans will vote for nothing, right? And we suddenly have fiscal a Tea Party movement that returns in the in the Republicans. So my point about and you're talking about sort of a lot of change there. We have this model that is just so structurally mean reverting that it just doesn't allow either side to go too far either way before dragging it back in the other direction. Does that mean that the Labor doesn't have the wins that we think it potentially could? That maybe what we're seeing out of Starbucks and Amazon in the near term is is an anomaly and it's just not going to not going to happen going forward because republicans will take will go again get control of the narrative well i think what's happening is that the uh, collective bargaining is entrenched in the constitution and the supreme court in the uh, state and federal laws and so so this doesn't require anything to do with congress and so the, the people who are in charge of the the uh, collective bargaining in, in Amazon are just saying we're going to keep going, and we're going to next we're going to go to Louisiana next, and then we're going to go to all these other states, and we're going to we're going to have unions, and we're going to have votes. And this is what happened in Starbucks is really big. They canceled the stock buyback, and the stock fell twenty two percent because they said if we don't if we don't give if we don't give more benefits to employees, we're not going to have any employees. And my point to my clients this week was, it's not because they're nice people. It's not because they just went to church and decided to be whatever, first century Christian. They're doing it because they have to, or else they're not going to have anybody, you know. And frankly, if if the stock falls 22% on the back of what is, I would argue, a smart labor retention policy, right? Right. Isn't that a buy? Isn't that all things being equal? an opportunity to buy Starbucks or any stock that gets hammered when the share buyback is being used for, for smart HR policy, right? Because, again, of, of any business in the United States, Starbucks relies on its people, right? It has to have its people. I Again, I, 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 don't, I don't own Starbucks. I've never owned Starbucks. But if I was going to own Starbucks, I would buy something on if it loses a fifth of its value based on a on what I view as a smart labor retention policy, that sounds like a, a pretty good reason to own the stock. Okay, then make that make that case and see what ha- see what your clients say. I, I think it's reasonable. I think that's a reasonable case. I think it's a reasonable case. But of course, you're looking at Starbucks having a systemically increased cost structure, which reduces its margins over the medium to long term, and therefore you know reduces its cash flow. I don't know what the calculus is, but it's better than not having any employees. That's for sure. Right. Yeah, because because again, you may be less profitable because your staff you're paying your staff more, but it's better than having no staff. It's better than having lines out the door of Starbucks where people just say, you know what, I'm sick of this. I'm not going to, you know, stand stand twenty minutes for a coffee. I'm I'm out of here. Exactly. Because I've done that like three times in the last in my travels in America. I was in lines in airports that were fifteen people, and it's like <laughs> I'll, I'll go somewhere else. This is absurd, right? Because because yeah. they don't have enough people, right? Because yeah. nobody wants to work for. Slave wages, literally. I mean, I'm sorry, but what America has been giving 
has been slave wages. Yeah, it is. How does your week look, Mr. Schulte? What have you got going on? Well, I think the one thing that we need to pay attention to, Powell made a very important distinction about, he said, all the, a lot of the yield curve is noise. We're looking at zero at one day out to three months. And why he said that is really important because when we see the danger of something breaking, we are going to see negative rates first. And, and the whole foundation of everything the Fed has been doing is to eliminate, completely eliminate the possibility of negative rates. So negative rates is when, right, when, when the price of money, right, turns negative because the supply of money and the demand for money, are, it's out of whack, it's broken. So you have to pull the supply, you have to, you have to reduce the supply of money by putting it in the Fed, quantitative easing. Yep. in order to, to make the, the price go up and, and to recalibrate equilibrium. So watch very, very carefully for negative rates. Negative rates are radioactive, like kryptonite for the equity market. And we don't want to see that. And that's what the Fed is talking about. And if they see negative rates, they will have to do QE. It's not like they, they want to or they'd like to or they're going to ask permission to. They must do it to reduce mm. negative rates. And so pay attention to that. That's going to be your, your Have emergency. Have we actually ever had negative rates in the U.S.? In yeah, the yeah, we had. In the 70s, no, 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 in the last, no, in the last no, 10 years. In the last 10 years, we've had little bits of negative rates where it was like, a, a, and then that's when markets fell apart. You that's know, right. Like days, JP, Morgan, JP Morgan basically got, stopped doing money market, holding money market accounts, didn't they? Right. And they basically and remember, that, money. that was a right. period, if I remember correctly. So when banks start charging you for holding your money, that's negative rates. And that was happening. That was happening yeah. for a couple of weeks. And the Fed was like, no, we, we, we saw this movie in Japan and Germany and, and Europe, and it destroys the banking system. It will cause yeah. your banks to trade at 0.3 times book. And right now, the U.S. banks are at 1.4 times book. I think negative interest rates is probably the last thing on people's minds at the moment as the five-year note makes a new high for the cycle. But, uh, mate, I, I hear you that this is one of those technical things which we need to really keep a close eye on. Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, th th that's going to be your bare argument is the, the tightening is too much and we're, we're starting to tip in the other direction. And the Fed is acutely you know, watching that. And the manifestation of that is negative rates. Got it. Have a great week, my friend. We'll talk to you shortly. Okay, be good. Thanks, mate. Bye now.